Good late Monday evening, everyone. I hope that all of you listeners out there tonight have had a good start to your uh, week so far, whether you all are working or not. I hope that everyone so far has had a um, good start to their week. I tell you, um, we think sometimes the weekends will go by slow, but in actuality, uh, they go by quicker uh, than um, than we would like for them to. But um, as like I said last night, the older we get, uh, they go by much faster than expected. And uh, while we don't have control over it, we just have to make the most of the free time that we do have. Um, so, um, you know, I look forward to uh, another night of uh, discussion um, involving Dan Abrams's book, John Adams Under Fire. And, you know, you know, it, it seemed like just yesterday I had finished uh, reading the book, uh, but then again, it's been a, at least three weeks or so since I uh, finished it. Um, and I uh, must say that uh, the book itself was a phenomenal read. Uh, and also knowing that uh, it's not so much, you know, about the Boston Massacre itself, but really, uh, when you read the book, it's almost as if you are actually witnessing history um, take place right in front of your eyes, whether it's witnessing the actual shootings that occurred on uh, King Street or what is to become um, in um, future podcasts with regards to the actual trial. But we are inching ever so closer to the actual trials. But I did realize something, too. You know, as much as I have uh, shared within the last five um, episodes of this podcast series on the Boston Massacre, I did forget that there were some other things that needed to be shared. As much as I know uh, about the Boston Massacre, and not just the massacre, but about this era of time, I can admit that there are things that um, I have left out, but the good news is that I've caught them in enough time to where they will be shared in this podcast that are not only of uh, relevant uh, significance, but also um, lay the foundation for what lies ahead in the upcoming um, individual trials. So, as I said, as mentioned from an earlier podcast, there was um, discussion about um, how this um, incident itself just didn't happen overnight. It had been in the works for probably at least a good 10 years or so, 7 to 10 years. We also know that um, hostilities don't just arise over one event. We have talked about how Parliament had passed several pieces of legislation ranging from the sugar and the stamp acts to the townshend duties and how all of the how those three pieces of legislation for example just fueled a consistent fire in the eyes of many Bostonians who at one minute felt a sense of relief when the stamp act was repealed only to have parliament stab them in the back with the townshend duties which uh placed uh, duties on lead, paper, paint, tea, glass. It almost seemed like the whole nine yards worth of um, endless um, laws that were uh, being passed without, without any proper means of um, appropriate representation. So, can anybody um, guess what could have trigger, triggered, uh, in terms of any particular incidents, 
that could have uh, sparked a um, an incident that would say break the, uh, the straw that breaks the camel's back. Well, back in uh, February, being the month before the massacre, um, a shooting had taken place uh, at a uh, shop. Well, at a, at a home, rather, uh, involving Ebenezer Richardson and uh, George Wilmont. They were loyalists, and what um, infuriated them was that there was a group of uh, young boys, and these young boys, their age ranges ranged from 10 to 15, and one of the boys involved in the activity of... Um, destroying um, Mr. Ebenezer's, um, or Mr. Um, Richardson's home um, was Christopher Sider, who was a German immigrant at the age of 11 years old. He and a group of other young boys felt it was appropriate to take whatever um, items, like a rock or possession, meaning a rock, and throw them at Mr. Uh, Richardson's uh, window, which they did. So what does Mr. Richardson and Mr. Wilmot do in return? They, um, they uh, find uh, young Christopher Sider. They, they haven't been stalking him, let's put it this way, but they um, fire into the crowd and end up killing him, young Christopher Sider, right away. His death... Uh, sparks extreme outrage and you know to for a child at the age of 11 to die in 1770 from gun violence that is another strong example right there of how profound the situation was in Boston yes there was enough anger over the taxation without representation but for a child to die by means of gun violence caused further outrage. But we have to remind ourselves of this. As tragic as it was that a child dies by means of violence, this young boy and his uh, friends, of course, you know, maybe they didn't know any better at that time, but of course they knew what was going on. They knew, they were aware of the hostilities that the English were, um, or the British rather, were um, presenting to the Bostonians or to the locals. But for a group of young boys to cause this kind of trouble only for it to result in the death of an 11-year-old boy does send shockwaves throughout the entire community. As a matter of fact, when Christopher Sider dies, um, there is a, like the equivalent of national mourning. So, it is safe to say that, um, that in the days leading up to March 5th, there were, between the, day, the, the days of March 2nd to March 4th, there are intense days of hostilities between both the British troops and the citizens. Incident number one involved... Um, a British soldier who went to John Gray's rope maker's shop for seeking part-time work. We don't know who the name the soldier's name was, but he was 
but when he came inside, he asked about part-time work. One employee at the shop said that there was work. However, to make matters worse, the employee, after appropriately greeting the soldier, felt it was okay to uh, shout obscenities at this individual. And therefore, it led to a minor brawl, but the soldier decided that, okay, I'm going to leave, thinking that everything was just going to go back to normal for the um, employees in the shop, but the soldier himself returned with other members from his unit, which resulted in an even bigger fight between both parties, only once again for the soldiers to get out of harm's way and return back to their local barrack station. So this would be a good example right here where both parties are at fault. You know, it's one thing to not like the presence of, of a foreign outsider, in this case being the British um, military presence, but it's bad enough to fuel the fire when, when one or, say, just a couple of soldiers come in asking for part-time work, only for John Smith, for example, to have to shout uh, inappropriate obscenities. In other words, you may not like, again, what's going on, but when you fuel the fire, you're adding um, another dosage of hot, uh, of, um, hot coals that... Uh, in some instances, could make that could either determine life or death. As for the uh, second incident, which occurred on March 3rd, it was the same similar incident like number one at a different rope workshop where um, troops, where British troops had asked for uh, employment and they were met once again with uh, obscenities and they, in the end, retreated to the safety of their barracks. Incident number three on the night of, on the day of March 4th, it was another incident at Gray's Rope Maker's shop where British troops searched for a missing sergeant, which was rumored, who was rumored, rather, to have been murdered. In the end, the sergeant was found alive, but both sides engaged one another with with severe verbal threats and hostile verbal exchanges, or I should say a combination between the two. What I find interesting about this one is that here a group of British troops come in to search for a missing sergeant. Well, in 1770, as we all know, in 1770, there's no such thing as a Bill of Rights listed anywhere for colonial America. We do... Um, as subjects, we still have rights, but in Massachusetts, many Bostonians are beginning to now realize that, hey, their, their rights as English people are under, um, are under fire. So, let's take an example of what would come uh, well after the revolution, well, well after the inevitable would come to an end being the, the Revolutionary War itself when we're trying to draft what's called a Constitution. Take the Fourth Amendment, as we all know, the right to be free from unreasonable search and seizures. 
1770, or and even just before 1770, when the British started began their occupation of Boston, they would come into people's homes, not just their homes, their businesses, and search for whatever they felt was necessary. But by doing so, they were also not showing any sign of probable cause. They just came at their own free will. So in other words, if you're going to search someone's home, you need to have a search warrant. You have to have probable cause that, hey, Mr. Jones or Mr. Smith is doing something that is inappropriate, that not only poses a threat perhaps to their well-being, but to a threat, uh, poses a threat to other members of their household and perhaps to the community as a whole. None of this was in play in 1770. So the more uh, frequencies which took place with uh, British troops just coming into uh, people's shops and homes and searching for whatever they could find without any proper means of probable cause, no wonder your hostilities were escalating out of control to where there was no end in sight. One, one thing I, I do find interesting, especially on the night of March 4th, well, first off, the streets of Boston were already filled with enough bad blood or tension, but one British soldier on this particular day had gone as far as saying to a random group of um, anti-loyalists that there would be bloodshed on this particular night. You know, words can say a lot. And it's safe to say that both sides were going, were saying stuff left and right to scare the opposition off, but also to make people just stay on edge. Well, back to the death of the 11-year-old boy, Christopher Sider. His death uh, marked the beginning of what we of what's often referred to as the tip of the iceberg. In other words, it's just a matter of time before the inevitable takes place. I'm not sure exactly when Christopher Sider died in February 1770, but regardless, when you think about how February is the shortest uh, month of, of of all 12 months, 28 days, except in a leap year, it's 29. And given that the Boston Massacre occurred on March 5th, the infamous incident, you think about it, no matter how early the incident occurred in February with Christopher, Christopher Sider's death or how late it, it took place, the bottom line is it was just a few weeks before the ultimate inevitable happened. So, on the night of March 5th, how, how is it safe to say that mobilization came about? Well, is it safe to say that 300 protesters all came together at the same time to harass the um, British garrison that was uh, present at the Customs House on King Street? Actually, Dan Abrams, in his book John Adams Under Fire, has uh, noted that... Uh, Protesters came in waves, roughly about three to six men per each group, and they were carrying sticks, and 
Even on the night of March 5th, there were already several encounters that had taken place between loyalists and patriots. I will say this, it's, if you're going to create tension in, forms of, in terms of um, having mo- more than just one man um, looking for trouble, you come in droves of three to six and you come from all different angles. This way it draws confusion, it draws uncertainty, but most of all it creates a hazard to where the opposition being the British forces have a hard time strategizing to where, okay, what direction do you send X number of troops to quell a potential rebellion? And how many other troops do you send in the opposite direction to enforce um, safety so that other uh, protests can be averted or quelled. So basically, as I had mentioned from another night, the, um, what do you call it, the mob or these protesters, they're like mosquitoes. They're coming in all different directions of Boston. The British are this big elephant that represents being the mightiest empire, not just in colonial America, but around the world. But the elephant can only, you know, the the elephant being this big force can only um, look in so many directions at once. Um, Think about it. Mosquitoes are going to move faster than elephants. Therefore, mosquitoes can mobilize far quicker than an elephant can. Um, so it is virtually impossible for this for the elephant to know where to mobilize, and not just so much where to mobilize, but when to leave and go to the next venue. So you could see how on the night of March 5th, 1770, for the soldiers defending themselves at the Customs House on King Street, how it literally became what I might like to say a logistical nightmare. In other words... How long do you hold your ground for? And how and and when does it come to the point where you have to say enough is enough? We will get to that finish that point here uh, shortly. Well, all kinds of chants are taking place at this time. I mean, not just 101 obscenities by the mob or the unruly crowd of people. And note this too, this mob or unruly crowd is the same group of people who have been protesting from day one, um, from the time the British first set foot in Boston in 1768. You're going to be kind of, uh, how do I say it, Um, don't be perplexed by what I'm going to say next, but I was actually surprised myself when I learned about it in Dan Abrams' book. What does what would lobsters have anything to do with um, the presence of uh, British forces in Boston? Well, in 18th century, lobsters were viewed as the lowest form of animal life in the sea. Basically, they were seen as bottom dwellers or scavengers of the ocean. Lobsters preyed on everything they could get their hands on. 
we'll look at it this way, the British soldiers or the British themselves being an elephant. And of course, an elephant, you know, in, in some ways could be seen as a scavenger, but this large force who could basically get their hands on anything they wanted that was in front of them, well, a lobster at the bottom with its big claws could just grab anything that was in plain hindsight. Well, the color of a lobster is red. The British soldiers are referred to as redcoats. And to be referred to as what we call a bloody lobster back was a true, and I should say an absolute insult. And that type of insult had been hurled at at these uh, at the British troops defending the customs house. That was uh, being called a bloody lobster back was probably far more worse than being called um, what do you, than being called something of one hundred one um, status. So on the night of March fifth. It is uh, very safe to say that scuffles and brawls and fist fights are all taking place throughout Boston, as mentioned a moment ago. And the largest house on, Cust- on King Street is the brick building known as the Custom House. Well, is it safe to say that by the time the crowds um, start making their way into towards the custom house that all eight soldiers are there at once. Uh, the answer is actually no. There's only one individual. His name is Private Hugh White. He is guarding the custom house. He is the one that took the initial verbal abuse by being called a bloody lobster back. And Hugh White does have other objects thrown at him, like snow, a snowball, um, ice, uh, what do you call it, um, an ice, a, a block of ice, to um, having a, um, just, to just enduring unnecessary verbal threats. But it's not long until he gets um, the necessary amount of reinforcement to come in to back him up. We know that there are about three large groups that are spread or mobilized around Boston, the name of these three 